Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. Welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Whilst I've had the opportunity to uh, interview some fantastic people in some fantastic organizations, it's not often you get a true legend um, in the human factors world to come and have a chat to. He's also possibly one of the most outspoken people I've seen on LinkedIn. And if you put something down there that um, that he doesn't like, he doesn't really beat, the, beat around the bush to tell you exactly what he thinks, which a lot of people think that is a fantastic thing to have in, in today's world where we may be um, not direct enough. So it's probably, probably just by that introduction, I've whittled it down already to only one of a one individual, and that is Professor Bob Stone. Bob, welcome. Hey, thank you. Legend is very, legend is very kind. Most people would say leg end, and but the uh, I like the introduction <laughs> that's focused on LinkedIn. Yes, the um, sometimes being called the the Simon Cowell of LinkedIn. I'm I'm, I'm a really nice guy, honestly. It's, it's some of my human factors people will tell you. I just I just because I'm getting on there and I see so much hype and nonsense on LinkedIn, it, it gets my blood pressure. It gets my blood pressure boiling. <laughs> well, you, you hide it well said nobody ever <laughs> but, um, oh, so yes. i mean talk about the linkedin i mean you've had a um you know a, a long career in human factors now for um 41 years it says on your linkedin that, that you're that you're retired or at least semi-retired um what does that mean how does a guy like you retire it's it's a bit of a long story i mean i i did actually officially retire in july 2019 and, and unfortunately I, I felt the need to go because my team and i weren't getting the support from the university that i felt we deserved despite the fact that the, the, the students were clamoring for the kind of the kind of projects we do particularly when our projects take students out into the real world it's not just behind a desk behind the lab or in the lab yeah. uh, so i did take official retirement they they, they did convince me to come back one day a week um which was also not a particularly clever thing to have done uh so yeah so semi-retirement i thought well now's the time to go off and maybe try and get some advisory positions with companies and other organizations and uh, as we were talking about earlier this this idea of people who need to stay active semi-retirement retirement it, you you tend to ask what semi-retirement it's it, it's been completely crazy since since I have come out, I mean, I mean with a little bit of luck, uh, even as we speak, I think I'm, I'm going to be given an emeritus professor position back at the University of Birmingham. Uh, but I'm also working closely with the University of Plymouth and, and a few others uh, and uh, and Malaysia. In fact, uh, literally two days ago, I was doing an online presentation. Um, the vice chancellor there uh, announced I was going to be a research advisor for the Malaysian University's advanced computing uh, setup. So that's so again, it's, it's you know, it's. I, I don't need these things for a CV anymore because I'm too damned old, but it's, <laughs> it, it keeps the brain going. And, and that's so in between that and building science fiction models, which people will also have seen on LinkedIn, one of my absolute passions being from the 1960s and what drove, yeah, what drove my career in ergonomics, I think. I, I'll put it down to people like Jerry Anderson. Uh, but, but I've been, I mean, you know, it's kept me going, particularly during the, the pandemic. So, so you mentioned about what what, you, what got you into ergonomics. Why? How did you get into human factors and, and ergonomics? What what inspired that? Um, or what was that first step? Well, the first step was uh, when I was doing psychology uh, undergraduate degree at University College London, um, and I, I mean, even though I enjoyed things like clinical psychology and social psychology, 
I was always in, I, was, I was always more attracted towards the, the occupational psychology side of things. And then I just discovered by absolute pure chance that literally across the road from Gower Street was the original ergonomics unit. Right. With uh, Harry Moore, God rest his soul, and, and Rachel, well, Rachel Birnbaum as well as Rachel Benedict today. And I went over there um, initially to ask if I could <laughs> initially to ask if I could borrow their um, their their police breathalyzer because I was doing a, a study on the the effects of alcohol on um, psychomotor skills. Dart, in other words, dart throwing, which was an incredible <laughs> an incredibly popular student experiment. Believe you me. <laughs> and I started talking to Harry, and Harry Moore, uh, absolutely inspirational. And I'm thinking, well, and they did things like control panels. You know, going back to Jerry Anderson. And they did things like drive tube trains and, and go down go down coal mines and 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 some of the courses were held at the uh, at the institute what was the Institute of Aviation Medicine and Army Personnel Research Establishment down at Farnborough. This is you know, this this is what I want to do. Um, so I I basically did. I, I took the MSc down there and never looked back. Never ever looked back. Brilliant. So so you you, you kind of have taken that traditional route. Then you've gone. You've got the um academic qualifications and then you then you move into industry yes i was very lucky again it, it, it's a story of luck about a third of the way through the msc course uh, i was i was pushed into applying for a, a job at what was british aerospace dynamics down at filton in bristol um by my colleagues by my my by my contemporaries and i thought no, no i didn't want that. and i had been very interested in the advanced flight deck which of course wasn't right. filled, it was it was in weight not weymouth um just, just south of London, the original the original advanced flight deck of the time. Um, so I put I put my little CV in, got invited down, uh, got invited down, and uh, Paul Day and Alan Smith were uh, were on the uh, the interviewing panel. Um, got offered the job. Uh, was taken next door to good old uh, Dr. John Hubbard's office, who was the head of department, and um, he was offered the job, and they kept it open until the MSc was completed, which was phenomenal. Okay. Yeah. So, so I got into something where, you know, again, you know, it, it, it sounds a bit naff talking about Jerry Anderson, but I did that as a kid. I designed control panels. I drew control panels on the wall, for goodness sake. <laughs> and this, this ergonomics thing was like sort of manna on a plate. So what sort of projects did you get involved with then? Because obviously when you joined, uh, like I said, when you joined BAE then, that's, that's pre-Salby days. Um, so what, what sort of projects were you getting involved in at that time? Yeah, very, very much pre-Sabi. I, mean, I think my first ever, my first ever project was a control panel redesign for the um, for the swing fire, the, the swing right. fire missile. And uh, we, we we used to work with, for example, the the, the they had the terrain model uh, over in just around the corner from five, Barmore Hall. Yeah. And we used to go down there and spend all night repositioning little scale uh, tanks in this 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 terrain model, mocking up Eastern Europe and filming things and, and, and I remember sitting there with a the camera and flicking the switch to the camera would scan left and right left and right only for a, a, you know, a huge spider to come running across the train model because it's very rural out there to ruin the whole blooming thing I think I suppose yes there were the the, the obvious defense projects looking into you know, if the effect of MBC gear on on, on interacting with systems and so on um, but it took a strange turn in that not that long into the job at B, um, the, the, a dear friend and obviously a, and a late friend, Richard Holman, um, had the confidence to put me onto a project which has been done for the Department of Energy, which is looking at human factors, aspects of manned 
and remotely operated submersibles for North Sea oil and gas. And again, that was a case of being in the right place at the right time, because if, if you then take that forward in terms of what I'm doing today, that couldn't have been a better opportunity, really couldn't have been a better opportunity. That, that's, that's really quite impressive, because the, um, like I said, that was um, before they opened up um, the Salvi building and, and, di and did that move. Um, how do you find, um, I guess, how did you find the, the sort of attitude to human factors then to kind of where how we evolved how, or where we are now because even now we seem to be fighting that uphill battle all the time to to get hf taken seriously or for it not to be cut when you know when times are times are tight what was it like then trying to trying to get that message over in many respects it was a lot it was a lot easier as you say than, than, than what we're still experiencing today unfortunately but but there seemed to be a recognition uh, and, and, and this was this was emphasised in the Department of Energy contracts that people believed uh, that there was a future where, for example, we could remove humans from hazardous environments. Uh, therefore, to do that, we need to talk. To, we need to talk to somebody who, who understands the human brain. That's how that's how naive it was looked at in those days. From a defence perspective, um, yeah, again, different departments, different engineering departments throughout BAE were very not I wouldn't say anti, but very sceptical about the you know, that we were again a bunch of academics stuck at the other end of the runway uh, and 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 doing stuff that was icing on the cake, far too expensive and took far too long, um, which is a real shame. But gradually we chiselled away, and I think internally and certainly throughout the Department of Energy projects, we we, we demonstrated what value human factors really has in, in the real world. This podcast is supported by K-Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. If we can demonstrate that value all the time, um, because it is a uh, it's it's a difficult sell because we, it, it's a spend to save, um, really, and that's always a difficult one to try and um, sell people, um, especially if they're not doing it. Um, but yeah, no, I think, I think that's really interesting that um, actually the, the overall challenge hasn't really changed. It's um, it's just taken on different guises. Um, so then you moved into um, the Salvi building and and worked with the team there. I believe. Um, you were the boss of my old boss, um, Laird Evans. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so what sort of, as, as, did, did you see a step change in what you were doing when you moved into the Salvi building, or was it just same old stuff, just in a different place? Oh, no, there, there was a definite step change, and I think it was a step change that, that, that coincided with, with, with general developments in human factors and ergonomics academically as well. Um, and it became more cognitive. So we were moving from away from tables and chairs, knobs and dials, um, which I still love even to this day, and <laughs> anthropometry, biomechanics, the, the, the good old stuff, the bread and butter stuff, into more uh, looking at performance modelling, um, things like carbon granules, GOMs, and as as was back then, and uh, and very much like human vision. And there was always a very strong human vision um, department within human factors, if, if you remember. Uh, but the, the, the kind of projects started to change quite dramatically. And I think that was a combination of a we found ourselves in Sarabi in competition with the divisions a number of which had their own human factors capability and didn't really want to share 
Right. Uh, and and certainly, we certainly found that quite challenging on occasions. But also we started moving into areas we never thought we would. So as a result of the result of the four years that we were doing work on um, manned and remotely operated submersibles, we then found ourselves working with BAE Stevenage uh, to look at remote operations for low Earth orbit and the future of the European space industry. Uh, and 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 that, that was that was that was quite an amazing setup. I remember it was called teleoperation and control. And then we did some work um, on looking at unbelievably back then uh, information displays on astronauts EVA helmets. And we were looking at and we were looking at rendezvous and docking uh, manned rendezvous and docking for spacecraft. So wow. it, it changed. And and Laird and I were actually working on that. Uh, and 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 various other things. I mean even things like. We found ourselves going out more, so we would find ourselves on the old longboat barge in Cardigan Bay, where Laird and I have been working on uh, a special breakup simulator trainers because they were testing vertical launch Seawolf. And right. of course, you know, the, the, historically, there have been weapons that have had faults in mid-flight and have turned around and come back to the coast, in, you know, forcing everyone to dash off and do it into a cubbyhole somewhere. But with this, we had to train them to know when to destroy the missile. Yeah. If if it went if it went AWOL, so so that the scope and the, and the scope of the projects changed from designing stuff that was going into a battlefield, you know, quite small packages of work, to quite large quite large projects with uh, very very forward looking for their time. So I've just, now got massive envy because one of the um, and people who listen to my podcast will know that the my big thing I want to get into the space stuff. Um, Elon Musk keeps on not returning my calls or my tweets. Um, <laughs> and but anyway, I'll 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 batten the jealousy down for a bit. The, well, no, um, don't, don't batten the jealousy down. Not just yet. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm I'm sworn to secrecy. We, we may be announcing something quite soon. Something in terms of the future UK space capability, and and certainly in the area of of extended reality or virtual reality and training. So don't don't give up hope just yet. That that sounds that's that's enticing. Oh, um, <laughs> anyway, but I guess um, I'll come back to you. <laughs> from from Sarabi, I went on to uh, I left Sarabi to join the uh, UK's National Advanced Robotics Research Centre right. up in uh, up in Salford, which is a bit of a, a bit of a culture shock yeah. to say the least. So I ended up in, I ended up on the campus of Salford University in a small building to run up what was then sort of a politically incorrect way was called the, the man machine interface team, <laughs> uh, which was my opening, if you like, into getting something started in the UK with regards to virtual reality. Because one of the things about working in, in, in the space field at, at Sarabi um, with Laird and others was that uh, we we actually got the opportunity to go to space conferences. And one of the space conferences that I went to in Maryland, I, I, I bumped into this fantastic guy called Dr. Steve Ellis, who was one of the human factors gurus over at NASA Ames uh, Aerospace Department. Talking to Steve Ellis, he said, well, seeing you're doing this human factors work for the European Space Agency, why don't you nip over to California, as you do, and see what we're up to? And, and then they, they managed to sneak me in, because they didn't have the clearance. So they managed to sneak <laughs> me into NASA in the back of their car. And cut a long story short, I've still got the video of what my experience. They put this headset on. They put this, which was basically two two pocket televisions from Radio Shack, and a glove that was brimming with fiber optics. And they put me onto this wireframe escalator. And my God, you know, I was going up. 
uh, my inner ear, which is yeah, yeah. Su suffering as we speak, you and I, is, uh, my inner ear was telling me I was on, on the ground, but I was going up, I was getting the death cues, I was getting, and, it, and I came back to the UK thinking, wow, this is amazing. So at the National Advanced Robotics Research Centre, we then went on to um, implement a kind of telepresence project where we were linking up the commercial virtual reality kit at the time, including the, the world's first transputer-based VR computer developed by a company in Chipping Sodbury, um, which in fact where I lived, when I, or near to where I lived, uh, when, I was, when I was in, in, in Filton. Uh, and to demonstrate remote driving, remote manipulation, and and other forms of VR and and augmented reality, and, and that was just the start. So, would you say that that sort of really kicked off your interest in VR and AR and all of that um, part of it? Yes, I mean what, what, the, the experience at NASA, which is say is now thirty four years ago, was what was an absolute career changer because I recognised that. This 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 ability to have information displayed around you in 3D, uh, or to be able to interact with what ifs. So yeah. I was seeing, look, I was seeing it from a, a prototyping point of view. That well, if we can do this today, think about designing jet engines or designing aircraft in the future. This is this is immense. But I also recognised that it was a technology with human factors needs, because I felt I felt disorientated and dizzy, and and I thought well, there's an awful lot that has to be changed here. Yeah. If people are going to use this in earnest, but it was it was definitely the, the, the change of a career. So, how have you seen the whole VR? I mean, VR was, I guess, the original phrasing. The then we all mentioned reality, and now you use the title XR. Um, what is the difference between them to, to the layperson who doesn't understand what what the nuances are between them? Yeah, it's, it, it it is difficult because there's there's so many people misusing these terms, uh, particularly in LinkedIn and elsewhere. There's all virtual reality is all about real time interaction with computer-generated databases, okay, which may be graphical, maybe sound, maybe smell, maybe haptic. Um, uh, but And the aim behind VR has always been to try and exploit the skills that we were born with, so head movement, hand movement, gestures. Augmented reality is where, well, the, the, the holy grail of augmented reality is to be able to superimpose virtual objects, such as avatars or humans, virtual humans, or, uh, you know, virtual platforms, vehicles, whatever, onto the real world. So the idea of AR is that you are uh, you're adding to, you're making the, the real world more informative. Right, yeah. Okay. At the moment, we're not there yet with AR. Mixed reality, which is the area I'm working on at the moment, is, is from a human factors perspective, I think much more powerful because with mixed reality, what we're doing is we're using real world objects to make the virtual reality more believable. So in the case of some of the work, the medical work we're doing, we're using actual medical kit because it'd be far too expensive uh, to build those in VR and make them incredibly interactive with a, with a glove. So the idea behind mixed reality is we, we, we can see our own hands and arms through a modified headset and we interact with the key aspects of the, the training that are being presented as real objects. But then we're using kind of a chroma key approach so that anything else is virtual, like the inside of a helicopter. Yeah. So it is confusing, um, but uh, fortunately, I mean, it's just fortunately for me, we've, we've got a number of, of, of demos and, and what have you that, that explain to people what the differences actually are. So as you've been, um, you've, um, I guess you've made this the, um, I guess, would you fair to say that you made that the main part of your career, your research career then going, going forward? Um, 
how have you seen it evolve? What's been the what's been the, I guess the the biggest step changes that you've seen with this technology? Yeah, it's a very good question because it hasn't evolved as, as fast as, as as it should have done. Um, and certainly in the 1990s, we saw the rise and fall of the the, the, the technology and the applications in a, in a seriously damaging way. Again, you know, people thinking, even today, people think of it as being the ultimate in games technology. Well, it, it may be, but it's got so much more than that. Uh, and we found um, in, I mean, the great thing about the 1990s was that we, in our little team, we're able to launch the, the, the UK or the world's first virtual reality initiative sponsored purely by British industry. Okay. And including Rolls-Royce and including what? Including Vickers Shipbuilding and Engineering, who BA Systems at Barrow. Yes. So, so all the stuff that they've been doing recently, well, over the years on virtual submarines started back in 1993 with this initiative. And if you are a human factors practitioner or in a related discipline and are not already a member, then do look up the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. They are the professional institution for all human factors practitioners. Find them at www.ergonomics.org.uk. The, I mean, the writing was on the wall. It, it, it was obvious that the technology had so much more to offer, but because the TV and the press that was dominated by companies like Virtuality and their crazy game setup and, and, and people complaining of you know, coming out of a game and barfing and, 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 and having to, to sort of drill the headset into their head for it to be stable and, and, and all the hype that went with it, uh, you know, even, even applications I don't mention on this podcast, uh, it died. It died a spectacular death towards the end of the nineties. Yeah. And to be to be honest, I mean, if it wasn't if it wasn't for the the gaming community, we may still even today be much much further behind than we were because once they started bringing on games like Unreal, yeah, yeah, uh, and, and 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 games like that, and not just the games but the editing toolkits that they put out with it, yeah, all of a sudden virtual reality became accessible. Yeah, we, we weren't trying to do everything on a quarter of a million half a million pound silicon graphics supercomputer so that that was the biggest step change that, that i saw which was, which was games uh gaming where the virtual reality purists were, were were slagging off gaming as much as they could but it was gaming was virtual reality savior oh, okay oh, so that's, that's, that's interesting that i didn't really appreciate just the i guess that almost positive and negative impact that um the gaming have had it's um, that's really quite uh, um, quite fascinating. Um, so where do you see it going? I guess in the future, um, because there's um, you know different people do different things and different people are claiming to do different things, whether they are or not. Um, what what do you see? What what where do you see that? Be, what what are going to be the big things that that we can look forward to? Do you think? Well, I think I still think um, using XR, if you want to call it that, in healthcare still presents a huge number of challenges. It's, it's an area that I'm quite passionate about, and an area that we're, we're working in, even even to this day, with the with the remnants the, the remnants of, of my uh, my VR team. Um, education, I think, is another area where we'll we, we will see step changes now that you know, companies like Oculus and HTC are bringing out quite credible standalone headsets. Yeah. So we're not going to have everyone tethered to a computer. Um, so, so that's going to make things much, much 
much, much better in due course once we persuade the teachers that they can use virtual reality and know the kids don't necessarily know more than you do, because that's yeah. a, that's quite a barrier to adoption. Um, it, in terms of engineering, in terms of defence, in terms of transportation, yes, it, it, it'll 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 drag along. It, it it will still be used by the BAE systems and the Kinetics and the Babcocks and the goodness knows who's in this world. Uh, but certainly, the major challenges are in are in education and healthcare. Uh, I, I think the, the one thing the pandemic has shown us too is that the, 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 there has been an explosion of interest. Uh, in shared virtual worlds, and shared virtual worlds have been around for decades. But uh, with things, with, with some of the the, the the packages that are out there now, where you have these, uh, and personally, I will not go anywhere near them because you you, you you find yourself in this ethereal world surrounded by disembodied avatars that are doing loop the loops and, and goodness knows what else, and look like Japanese Japanese anime characters. Um, I, I, I can't face that at the moment, but but I do think we, we're, we're seeing we're on the eve of a new challenge when you think about things like cyber security and you think of things about resilience and what have you. It's I was I was writing just this morning about potential security issues uh, associated with these shared virtual worlds, you know, and even, even things like having really tricky situations. Like, could you, you know, for example, could you imagine a, a virtual Manchester arena? Yes. And the, effect, the impact that could have on the avatars and the people who are involved there. Virtual Novichok attack, yeah. albeit digitally, um, sexual stalking, uh, and, and a whole host of issues that this new technology is going to bring up. Uh, we know these things go on online at the moment, but in a virtual world, which is so visual and can have such a major impact on your psyche, I think this is where we're going to see things evolve in a very interesting way and of course we've got things like deep fakes as well I think the deep fakes that we've seen on on LinkedIn and, and AI being able to manipulate the images of persons long dead yeah it's 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 scary it is I guess the I, I don't know the, the the sort of film I've seen um, most recently or the book that I've read is that is Ready Player One the sort of I think is the first one that I've seen that really in, obviously, it's, it's pitched at that, that sort of um, elderly teenage level, but it does actually start to hit some of these issues for the first time in, in almost a way that I, can, I think is credible. You know, it's not it's, it's stuff that you can imagine happening in, um, in in the next few years and people are spending more time online and as a distraction from from real life and that type of thing. Um, have you seen it? What, what were your thoughts? I haven't. I haven't seen it. Um, I've, I, I, I tend to be very picky in the films that I watch these days. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it is science fiction. Yes, I should go and see it. And you're quite, you're completely right. And from the book's perspective, I mean, now we know people are people know what virtual reality is if you stop them in the street. Yes. When when Gibson brought out Neuromancer, when uh, you know, Stevenson brought out Snow Crash, Snow Crash was an excellent book. It didn't have the same impact as Ready Player One has today. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm sure I'll get around to see it at some stage. It's not very high on the list of priorities. <laughs> That's, that's fair enough, but um, it kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning, how we sometimes let fiction inspire uh, what it is that we do. Um, and so I'm, I'm still constantly blown away by the fact that we've got so many got scientists and engineers trying to replicate the tricorder out of Star Trek um, and things like that. And it's, it's you know, when where does um, fantasy and reality sort of stop leading each other? Mm. Um, it's interesting, too, because... Uh, Another one of my pet hates on LinkedIn, which you may have noticed, is when people use the term holodeck, because I, I, that that more than anything gets, gets my shackles up. In that we are nowhere near 
having a holiday. We are nowhere near being able to walk around in a virtual world where we're unshackled. We don't have to wear wearables. Uh, we can smell, taste. We can walk for ages. I mean, yes, there are there are techniques and there, there are gimmicky games rooms that are out there that are trying to do this. But uh, uh, again, you know, Star Trek, Star Trek, and people like Jerry Anson have done amazing wonders in helping people imagine technology that is in fact with us today. Uh, yeah. But I think the, the holodeck is a little. I mean, I, I won't be around by the time the holodeck finally appears. I have to say, and I'm sure a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of our current generation human factors students won't be around either. Yes, but it will. I think uh, if that does come come to life at some point, it, something uh, akin to it will. It will prov provide us with some interesting challenges. It does, and then the things like deep fake and, and and all the things that I mentioned in terms of yeah. you know really quite nasty types of cybersecurity in virtual space. Again, we, these things will need to be looked at. Mm. It's almost the the it's that unint unintended consequence piece isn't it that, that will um, provide a lot of challenge yeah um so to get back to you to get back to you to a certain uh, more or more of an extent um what's been your favorite experience of in your career to date um what's, what's been like the favorite job or the favorite favorite um activity well i think when I was when I was research director for part of the time, the HFI DTC was was alive. I mean, I managed to get quite a lot of things done in the real world uh, that yeah, I could kick uh, strike off my bucket list. And I think the, the the DTC and my BAE experience taught me very much that it, you you can't do human factors, you can't do all of human factors from behind a desk. Yeah. I have to say there were dare I say there were some people in Saudi. Uh, who had that mentality that they could design future cockpits from behind a desk uh, without ever even having been near a cockpit, for example. And that's not what human factors is to me. It's getting out and working with the end users and, and, and learning to do stuff. And I think from that respect, I suppose, the, oh, crikey, I think the offshore work has been the most challenging and experiential. So that's everything that's involved everything from trying to get urine out of an SBS diving supervisor who juggled with his knives first thing in the morning before coming on shift um, to uh, getting stuck in a submarine or a three man submersible at the bottom of Loch Linney in Scotland. And if Lair's listening, if Lair's listening to this, he'll raise his eyebrows because he, he knew that I, I ate out on that on that um, 13 hour, that 13 hour marathon where we were on. Uh, what's it, uh, hydroxide lung scrubbers and the, the, the transponder being knocked off the top of the submersible and we have to be recovered and all that so that was that that, that those offshore experiences were uh, uh, really changed me you are listening to 1202 the human factors podcast we wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support you can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value and putting users at the center of what we do. I think what attracts a lot of people to the, to the um, human factors world, I guess, is the ability to go and talk, go and learn new domains and look at what different people, it's a really good excuse just to go and learn about what other people do without oh, having yes. to, um, without having to become um, a proper submariner or a proper pilot or anything like that. Exactly. You go and stick your nose in and just, uh, and have a really good route around. Yeah. So it's actually favorite. What's been your strangest experience? 
two strangest experience. Number one was spending three days in the morgue in Johannesburg. That was, <laughs> ever since then, I have not had any squeamish responses to anything to do with the human body because, uh, you know, the, the Morgan Johannesburg on a Friday night, what gets brought in makes you think, how on earth can any human do that to another human? Uh, and, and the reason I was there, I was there with the defence medics because I was doing, um, as best I could, a kind of observational task analysis of various uh, surgical interventions using cadavers. Right. So that was strange. The other strange, which in fact, the other strange thing, which is, which is in fact related, was a study we did of um, chicken debonos in a well-known chicken factory in Herefordshire. That, that, that was, in terms of, as you say, getting out and sticking your nose in, and, and on this case, being, being trained to be a chicken deboner, um, <laughs> which is a skill that I, that I maintain even to this, even to this day, <laughs> which impresses the hell out of my wife when we have a roast. Uh, that that was that was a very interesting experience, very successful project, but a very interesting experience. Yeah. Oh, that's um. Yeah, that that beats all of my experiences hand down so far. Fair play. Um, <laughs> obviously, we we've had the past um well more than twelve it's sort of twelve months this week that we sort of started going going to lockdown and stuff. Um, how have you found working in lockdown? I think it, it comes and goes in terms of, I mean, my, my wife and I, since, since retiring, we, we, we got ourselves a little sort of static home down, down in Cornwall. We miss that dreadfully because to, to get out and, and, and just, just to get out into the real world, get away from the virtual world and the computer world and into the real world is, is, is something, something we miss. I mean, I've been quite lucky in that um, amongst, any, amongst other things, I tend to build 1960, I've got a stockpile of 1960s science fiction models. Um, which I've been building, and, and, and not just building them, but 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 super detailing them with with undercarriage detail and what have you. Uh, that's kept me going. Uh, I have been writing papers, um, written a couple with my colleagues at the Royal Centre for Defence Medicine, uh, and as I say, since since I retired, I, I am involved in a number of of little uh, tiny projects, multiple tiny projects, which chisel away. Um, at each day, at the hours of each day, so it's it's, it's kept me going. Uh, but you, you're looking around at other members of the family, looking around at everything else. I, I think I've been lucky because there are people out there who, uh, and, and those that are alone, who have really suffered psychologically from this this pandemic, and it's it's very cruel. Yes, no, it's 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 all very easy to say. I think that we can stay at home, we can be connected, and all that sort of stuff. But I think, um, well, certainly from a personal perspective, it's made me value. Um, you know, other interactions that you have that um, I love my family dearly, but um, you want to be able to go out and you know, and even just the uh, the humble pint at the pub um, has way more value than I than I fully appreciated. Yeah, it was again being lucky in terms of getting out because I live in Droitwich, so we, we, it's it, it's not I mean, the town is an open space, but but we've been lucky in that just literally five minutes from where I live. There's an old uh, an old derelict building that goes back to Henry VIII, and the local the local council and archaeological uh, societies are have secured it. It's a listed building. It's in, it's in a very very bad state, and um, we've been looking at trying to help them with a virtual reality reconstruction. So I've been able to go down the road with with the drone and oh. do, do some various surveys, 3D construction from drone videos. So, so again, it's one of those things that it it, it just keeps you focused. Yes, yes. So I guess to sort of wrap up then, what does, um, what do you think the next 12, 24 months hold for you? What sort of, um, 
what sort of things do you want to get get stuck into? Um, I want to do a lot more virtual heritage work. I'm, I'm very passionate about using VR to make the invisible visible, if you like. So it, we, we've been I've been taking students down to the West Country for, for, for many years and getting them to try out new tech on Dartmoor or at sea and what have you. And, and I enjoy that. And, and I want more of that. So we, we are talking, we, we're collaborating with a small company in Plymouth now with, with the hope of actually making that happen uh, in, in the fullness of time. Um, and, and really, I mean, I've got, at my age, I've got no, I, I'm, I'm ticking off most of the bucket, bucket list things. I mean, for example, a few weeks ago, just before the second lockdown, I, I, I was able to go to Cosford, RAF Cosford and the museum and sit in the cockpit of the TSR2. That's something I've always, always, always wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we did a 3D, we did a 3D, uh, 3D scan around the aircraft as well. So it's things like that. It's, it's little opportunities. And it's the same for the, the, the remnants of my team. It's, it, it's getting out there and, and making a difference, getting out there and doing STEM work with kids and public engagement activities with people who have got no idea what's on their doorstep in terms of hidden heritage. Yeah. So that if, if I can carry on doing that kind of thing for the next two years at least, I will be a happy bunny. Brilliant. Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you ever so much for giving up um, uh, a whole chunk of your day. And um, um, keep well, and I hope to catch up again soon. Likewise, thank you, Barry. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the great questions. Thank you for listening to Twelve O Two, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at baz underscore k. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.